thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we are continuing the book of Genesis, and we're in chapter 48 today. Before I start in this chapter, I wanted to bring to you a reference that my wife gave me. Maybe one of these days I might convince her to come and talk to you a little bit about all that. Um, this is called A Mother's Rule of Life. It's a book written by Holly Pierlo. Anybody heard of her? Anybody seen this book before? So uh, let me read to you from the back. It's published by Sophia Institute Press, not directly related to Genesis, but some of the questions that we keep, um, you know, that, that keep on coming up are addressed by her in this book. And um, I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of excerpts from this uh, to maybe encourage you to take a peek at it. On January 1st, 2000, Holly Pierlo pounded her fist on the kitchen table and yelled at her husband, I can't take it anymore. Uh, obviously, this is uh, very exceptional. It doesn't happen in many households. Uh, okay. Motherhood and homeschooling had overwhelmed her. The house was dirty, the laundry undone. Holly felt frustrated, discouraged, and alone. She couldn't find time to snuggle and have fun with her five children or to go out with her husband. Yet, she, yes, she loved Philip and she loved God, but she had come to resent Philip's freedom, and she almost never found time for prayer. Today, everything is better. Holly still homeschools, but the house is cleaner. She gets more done, and the kids are happier. There's less stress, less strife, and less housework. Holly's been healed of past wounds that troubled her soul and her marriage. Best of all, she spends at least an hour each day in prayer and time each evening with Philip. Let me read to you one quote that my wife wanted to... um, wanted to, uh, to bring to your attention, especially for, for you women and mothers. Here's what she says. Well, actually, so Holly is a, very, a fairly intellectual woman. She's going through this journey on her um, walk with God. And she starts by getting married, and she says, I thought that marriage happiness meant, meant happiness for myself, which is a really interesting point. And then she discovers what the meaning of happiness truly is in marriage. And one, one point she makes, which, which uh, my wife found really interesting, and I think it's very profound, is this. A rule is more than a schedule. So she's distinguishing the rule and the schedule. And this is what she says. A rule followed for the practical benefits alone is not a rule of life. It is a schedule. Duties attended to grudgingly or with reluctance do not make a rule, for a rule of life must be lived 
as a response to the call of God. Hmm? A rule of life must be lived as a response to the call of God. And that, my friends, is a very modern way of saying that we live by the covenant. Right? And that's the struggle of us all. Uh, I, I, do ha- I do talk to some of you after Bible study. There are many questions fielded personally relating to morality in marriage, contraception, having children, um, and other issues like those. It is, at the end of the day, we are all faced with the same challenge, the same quest. Either you, re- you respond to the call of God out of faith, and faith is yielding to the ascent. Faith does not mean you know everything, you've checked everything, you've crossed every T, you dotted every I, you looked under every rock, and now you have all the facts, you make a decision. That is wonderful, that is reason, it's a gift of God, but it isn't faith. Faith requires you to make a leap when you do not have all the elements in your hands, when there is risk. And if, there, if you can't do that, you really are struggling with your faith. The virtue of faith that is given you as a gift from God has not been nurtured, either in your family where you come from or because of your own personal lives of both. That is a challenge for all of us. And you know that. And it is meant expressly. It is part of God's plan. Your, the difficulties you face in your life, and some of you have very severe problems that you're facing. Not easy. Very difficult issues. You must come to understand and realize and accept that they are there in your life as a gift. Seeing a problem as a gift requires faith. It's not easy. I don't want you to ever think that I'm saying it because I think it's easy. It's not easy. It's very, very, it demands everything out of you. And I mean everything. But if you can't get to the point of seeing these difficulties, the challenges, the defeats, the regrets, the things you want to do that didn't work, and everything else with it as a gift, and I mean it as a gift, you're basically saying God is nasty. There is no other choice. Either God loves you, and in that case, He is with you, and in that case, what He gives you is for your own sanctification. It's a gift. Or He doesn't. There is no middle point. There isn't the God of the heavens sitting out there, putting the world on autopilot, and coming and checking from time to time. Every hair on your head has been counted. Nothing will fall down that He doesn't know about, that He doesn't care for. Nothing. So, the book of Genesis is a lesson, not just a reminder, it's a lesson in these facts, especially when you look at the life of Joseph, life of Jacob before him, and every single one of them. These were the beloved of God. These were chosen by God. He came down. He spoke to them. He told them. They heard it. I will make of you a great nation. I will make of you a great nation. You will be, I will bless you. He told them repeatedly. Was their life any different than ours? Was it? 
So all of that is an echo of what? Of the words that Jesus spoke to Thomas. Have you believed, believed Thomas because you saw me and you touched me? Blessed are they who believe and yet did not see. Why? There is no difference. Abraham spoke to God and look at his life. He was asked to sacrifice his son. Raise your hands, those of you who have been asked to sacrifice your sons lately. Take him on a journey, take a knife, and then put him over a fire and plunge the knife in his heart. Raise your hand, please. Okay. He, God spoke to him in visions and came to him and all these things that many of us sometimes wish. Why doesn't God talk to me? Well, be careful what you're asking for. Right? He did. And look how he lived his life. Then Jacob. And then Joseph. We all need to be reminded. We must be reminded. All we need to do to get into hell is to forget about heaven. Not to do anything crazy. Do you understand that? St. Paul says as much. If you neglect the things you've been taught, that's enough. Okay? And the only constant reminder we have is to reflect on Scripture daily because we need it. We're bombarded by all sides, by so many negative thoughts coming at us that we're not worthy, that we are failure, that things are not the way they should be, that what we want to do may not work. Look at the life, world around you, the economy, the world, the war, the, you know, the, the oil, the end of the world, who knows, the UFOs, etc. I mean, if you see the gushing of all this negative information coming at you from all sides, you have to understand that you must create for yourself a garden where God can come and walk in the garden with you and speak to you in the privacy of your own heart. So either you're doing a holy hour at church every day if you can, or at least once a week, you're going to confession regularly, and then you are praying. You are a people of prayer because you need it. If you're coming to this Bible study once a week and you're forgetting all about it for the rest of the week, okay, it's not going to do you a lot of good. It can't carry you. The Holy Spirit will carry you, but only if you want to, which means you trust that everything He gives you is a gift. Everything that He gave you today was a gift. Can you see it this way? The annoying guy on the highway in front of you, he was a gift. The people who talked to you on the phone, he was so loud, he was a gift. Yeah? And on and on it goes. Can you think this way? That's how you have to move in your life so you can receive everything God wants to give you and then live in peace. As Joseph did. Hey, Fatty. Do you know how to set up that? Uh... Thanks. Thanks. God bless you. So, with that, again, the title of the book, if you're interested, is called A Mother's Rule of Life. How to Bring Order to Your Home and Peace to Your Soul. And it is published by Sophia Institute Press. And you can come and take a look at it afterwards. But uh, my wife uh, um, made me um, promise that I'll bring the, back, the, the book back home. So chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son jo Joseph has come to you. 
Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the offspring born to you after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. For when I came from Padan, Rachel to my sorrow died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, I pray you, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, and lo, God has let me see your children also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand upon the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had who has led me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and in them let my name be perpetuated, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow in a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand upon his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to, your, to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Bow, sorry. All right, before we go into this, there was one point I wanted to make on chapter 47 and I didn't get to last week. If you remember, in chapter 47, Joseph at the, um, uh, Jacob at the end made Joseph promise that he will, will not bury him in Egypt, but he will bring him back into the promised land and bury him there. Right? So the notion was that he wanted to be buried in that land that God has promised him. For those of you who are from other countries living here, there is maybe amongst you the notion or the tendency that you ought to be buried in your place of birth. Maybe you know people who think this way. How many of you know people who think this way or have encountered that thought before, that you should be buried in a place of birth? Okay, let me read to you a commentary by St. John Chrysostom. And you know Chrysostom means um, golden mouth because of his homilies. Here's what he has to say about that. He was actually commenting in chapter 47. 
It's a lengthy commentary, but I think it's worthwhile. Those who have passed away after a life of virtue. St. John Chrysostom. Many mean-spirited people, when we exhort them not to be overly concerned about burial or to give highest priority to having the remains of the dead brought back from foreign parts to their native land, St. John is writing in the 4th century. So you can see this is a very common and old and persisting notion. To the native land, quote this story to us, claiming that the patriarch also gave attention to it. First of all, however, as I said before, it must be remembered that the same set of values is not to be looked for at that time as it is with people of today. Why? Because of the coming of Christ. Before the coming of Christ, there was only one land of promise. After the coming of Christ, every land became a land of promise. Why? Because in every land, you had the chosen people, the new Israel, the church. That's the difference between before and after. Second, the good man wanted this done not without reason, but to let his descendants have a glimpse of the real prospect of returning themselves someday to the promised land. I mean, for proof that future events become visible to the eyes of faith, listen to Jacob already calling uh, death. Um, He said, remember, I want to sleep with my forebears. Hence, Paul also said, by faith these people passed on without having received what was promised, but having seen it from afar and greeted it. How? By the eyes of faith. So let no one think Jacob's instruction came from meanness of spirit. It was due to the times and the... and the importance of the return that would be theirs. So, essentially, the reason why Jacob made Joseph make this promise, according to St. John Chrysostom, wasn't because he didn't like Egypt, or it wasn't right for him to be buried in Egypt, but because he was insistent upon the fulfillment of the promise that God made him. You shall lay with your forebears, and they laid in in the promised land, therefore that's where he should lay, because that's what God told him. Not so for, with most of us. Okay? The point he's making is that if you think that it's important for you to spend thousands of dollars to take a dead body when you can be feeding poor kids back to wherever you were born and bury him there, and if, if you think this is pleasing to God, you really ought to think again. Because, here's St. John Chrysostom again. I mean today, when there has been a deepening of our values in the wake of Christ's coming, it would be proper for someone to be blamed for worrying about things such as burial. Let him not think it a misfortune for someone to end his days in a foreign land or to pass from this life in solitude. After all, it is, not such a, is it not such persons who deserve to be thought unfortunate, but the one who dies in sin, even if he dies in bed, at home, in the bosom of his family. All right? If you have someone, a member of your family, who died and went to hell, the fact that you bury him in his own home country is not going to change anything to the fact that he's in hell. And likewise, if he's in heaven, God willing, guess what? He couldn't care less where you're burying him. It's meaningless. Viewed in the economy of salvation, all these nationalistic behavior over where we place dead bodies is absurd. It's only our own attachment, the things that really are going to pass away, that make us spend so much money on this. Now, granted, if you live across the border, you just have to you know, cross over and walk 10 minutes. That's one thing. But if you carry a body overseas, 
and you're spending thousands of dollars on it, you need to think twice as to why you're doing it, what's the purpose, what's the meaning. For proof that nothing of the kind causes any harm to the virtuous person, learn that good people generally, I mean the prophets and the apostles, with few exceptions, were buried, we know not where. Some, you see, were beheaded, others were stoned and so departed this life. Others suffered countless punishments of different kinds for the sake of religion, while all were martyrs for Christ. No one would dare say about such people that their death was without honor. Instead, it would be in keeping with those words of sacred scripture, honorable in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ones. Just as it is called the death of holy people, honorable. So listen also to scripture calling the death of sinners wretched. The death of sinners is wretched. So even if one ends one's life at home, in the presence of wife and children, with relatives and friends at hand, but in fact one is bereft of virtue, such a person's death would be wretched. Even if the person endowed with the virtue falls among brigands, even if he becomes the food of wild beasts, his death would be honorable. All right? You need to think about those things. Don't just log a body and pay thousands of dollars to ship it back where he came from simply because, oh, well, that's what you always do. You understand? Moving on, chapter 48. The chapter, obviously, is divided into two parts. The first one is the introduction of Manasseh and Ephraim, who are the children, the two boys of Joseph, to Jacob before he dies. And then the second one is the reversal of the order, which should not surprise you by now, because as we've said countless times in Genesis, the book of Genesis is about the crashing of the firstborn. Right? It's a negative lesson that says there are no righteous firstborn among human beings. It's a deep lesson because it, it prepares us for the need of God to come down and be the righteous firstborn, the one who would lead us and who would save us. Because none of us can do it. Right? So after this, following the oath ceremony that happened between Joseph and uh, Jacob, we don't know how long, uh, what, you know, what is the length of time, but we only know that it happened after. Joseph um, is close to dying and he is ill. Really interesting. What's so interesting about that statement? Your father is ill. First mention of illness in scripture. Right here. There has not been any mention of illness thus far in the book of Genesis until the close. Now we hear of illness. So, again, if you look at the life of Joseph, of Jacob, unlike Abraham and Isaac, who essentially died of old age, in his case he is ill. So add to all the other misfortune he had in his life, illness towards the end. Right? And yet he, he was called Israel and none other was called Israel. So Joseph now goes to see his father and he takes with him his two sons. And you notice in verse 2 that even though he is ill, it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. The older sitting up for the younger. Why is he doing that? Why is Jacob, who is older, sitting up in front of Joseph? No, very simple. He is sitting up to honor his position. He is before the second 
most powerful man in Egypt who has one of the highest position and in order to honor that position he just sits, sits, he sits up. Respects for these, for, these, for these positions and for the people who occupy them even when they themselves are evil is extremely important in Scripture. It's a constant theme that we see in Scripture. So even when Jesus was facing um, Caiaphas, the high priest, and this particular high priest was not uh, by any means holy, he showed him utter respect. Even when Jesus faced Pilate, he showed him respect. Now to respect a person in a position of power does not mean that you accept their decision or you make their decision yours. It means that you respect the person. And practically speaking, it means that you have to be very careful with jokes pertaining to the president. You will be called to account for those. You have to be very careful with someone in position of authority with whom you disagree. And then you use humor to demean that person. You will be called to account for that. It is a sin, because fundamentally what you're saying, back to my initial point, this person does not have his power from God. And hence, you are indicating that somehow Jesus Christ is not the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Do you understand? You're saying that something happened where Jesus had no say. That is why the respect of authority is so important because you are respecting the divine will of the Lord as the King of Kings. And when you show disrespect to people in position of authority, you are effectively disrespecting the Lord. You understand? And the problem we have is that we are so hooked into the notion that God is Santa Claus... And everything he's going to do is going to be good, as we consider good, meaning, you know, all the good things, health and joy and happiness and peace and prosperity and all the things that we yearn for, we think come from God's hands. But the oil spill and the earthquakes and the, and the war and uh, the plague, and all the other things that Scripture speaks of repeatedly as coming from the hand of God, those don't come from the hand of God. They come from somewhere else. We don't know exactly where, but it can be Jesus. So what do we turn Jesus in, into? Yeah, He's just there to be you know, the loving God. He's going to embrace all of us and pat us on the shoulder, and that's all He does. But He has no control over all of that stuff out there. How can you have faith in a God like that? How can you say the creed and think of, of Jesus as a God like that? See how the devil plays his little game because he knows, well, we can't associate a bad thing with God, right? We can't associate the death of a child with God. God would never do such a thing. Never mind the fact that we all die when God says so. None of us can die without God saying so. He's the only one 
who has control over our lives. Hmm? Never mind that it's God who condemns people to hell, because nobody can go there without God explicitly condemning them to hell. We don't auto-go to hell. You understand? Even if somebody committed the most atrocious crimes we can think of, this person does not automatically go to hell. Why is that very important for us? Because if this person were to automatically go to hell, what are we saying about the mercy of God? It is constrained. There's a limit to it. You see that? Jesus has to send him there. Yeah? Do you see this dichotomy in our head, how much it hurts us? Because instead of really embracing the cross, instead of really embracing the authority and power and rule of Jesus Christ, and instead of accepting that his wisdom is above ours, we have this negotiation thing going with him. You're my God with all these departments, but when it comes to these other things, you're not my God. I don't know what's going on there. I don't want to think about it, but you have nothing to do with it. And hence, we limit our ability to receive his grace. Then we don't really root for the truth. We root for compromise. Yeah? Always remember this. You'll hear people say that all the time. How many times do you hear people say, well, you know, good people go to heaven. How many times have you heard that? How many times do you hear it in funerals? He's a good person. He's in a better place. Yeah? How many funerals have you been to where uh, somebody said, well, you know, this person's in hell. Let's just go out. Ever happened? Thank God it doesn't happen. I'm just, okay. How many times do you go to a, f- a funeral where you hear somebody say, let's pray for him because he may be in purgatory. And he's going to need our prayers. No. Funeral is a way for us to dispose of the dead. You know, he's dead. He's a good place. That's it. We have nothing to do. What is the implication? He's in a better place than we are. So he better be praying for us. Because we're the one in trouble, not him. Do you understand how this false theology lead, lead to real tyranny? Because apart from the truth, you, all you're going to end up with is compromise. And compromise will give birth to tyranny. So, let's just set the record straight. Good people go to hell. I'm going to say it one more time. Good people go to hell. No. Go to hell. There's no may. Yes. Holy people go to purgatory. Good and holy. There's a big difference. And then saints. Saints go to heaven. Only saints. Yeah? No, 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 no. Not only canonized saints. That's, the, that's it. That's it. Now you start talking. You're not potentially good. You're a potential saint. What's the difference between good and holy and saintly? What's the difference? What's the fundamental difference between these two? Yes. Very good. That's a very good. To the degree you accept the will of God in your life, to that degree you're going to attain to sanctity. Absolutely. What's the difference though between saint, saintly, holy, and good? First of all, can we call anybody good? No. We can't. Why? Because Jesus told us not to. Huh? Good master, what must I do to get to, to receive everlasting life? He turned around, what does he say to him? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Yeah? Okay. So what do we mean by good people? 
What is, what is a good person? They don't hurt anybody. Okay, they don't hurt anybody. Really? We're going to come back to this one. Yes. Virtue. Pardon? Virtue. Virtue. Okay, virtue. Very good. Joining with, with Christ in his passion and suffering, embracing the cross, doing God's will. Saints, holy people. That's not what we mean by good. Yes. It's good according to some people's standards. That's a very key component. Yes? Politically correct. That's another really key component. Yes? Nice people. Yes. Pardon? Loving. Yes. Love. I'm not going to be going on that, but yes. Put the well-being of others at all costs before. They could be doing that too. Yes. Now, isn't it interesting? You can be doing all these things and still go to hell. Ah. First of all, where am I getting, where, where do I get that thing from? Am I making this stuff up? Okay, where am I getting it from? Which part of scripture? It's Corinthian. Yes, the beautiful letter of St. Paul about love. And everybody reads it and don't pay attention to the words. Right? What does he say? If I raise the dead, if I feed the poor, if I do this and then the other. And if I do not have Okay, and here's the problem. Love. We think he's talking about this mushy feeling that we call love. Is that what he's talking about? No. What is he talking about? The Greek, charis. Right? The Hebrew and the Aramaic, halil. Grace. Grace. If I do not have the love of God, the grace of God which makes everything possible. Therefore, the fundamental distinction between a good person and a holy, and that's why you notice they don't say holy and they don't say saintly, they say good, is that good truly depends upon us. It's a human measure. Whereas holiness and sanctity depends entirely upon the grace of God. And there is no way you're going to make it to heaven Without grace. Yeah? But, because we have this issue, well, you know, this person did all these wonderful things. Forget St. Paul, what he says. Who cares? Right? This person did all these great things. Fed the poor. Took care of... So all the external acts are there, we think. Right? He must be in heaven. Forget what St. Paul says. Forget it. Why do we say that? I'll tell you why. Because fundamentally we're cowards. Because if he can make it to heaven, then I can. Without becoming holy, or embracing the cross, or the sufferings of Jesus, or doing any of those things that Jesus and the apostles and the church had told us to do for all these years. You see? You see what a wonderful, comfy trap we fall into? Because we stick to the word good. What is good, therefore? Good is sanctity and holiness brought down to mediocrity. That's what it is. Be careful with these words because they condition you to think in ways which are non-Christian. Who cares if you're good? Unless you're holy. Unless you're a saint. Yes. Very good question. All you have to do is be good. Well, it depends who you're talking to, right? That's why I only talk to people who are committed to the faith and people who want to be uh, we want to go to heaven, right? I'm not going to have this conversation with many folks out there because they won't even understand what I'm talking about. But for people within the church, you have to constantly remind them of, okay, 
What did Jesus ask us to do? What did he say? Did he say, be good as my father is good? No. Be perfect in one gospel, right? And in the other was, that's Matthew, be perfect. In Luke, be merciful. Merciful. Perfect. Mercy. That is holiness. Perfect mercy. So therefore, what is he talking about? Notice when Jesus says, be mercy, be merciful, be perfect, he's not saying, feed the poor, do all these wonderful things. Right? He, that's not what his focus is. His focus is what? On your heart. Inside. Huh? It's the growth of what goes inside that matters at the end of the day. Couple that with what St. Paul said. I can be doing this Bible study. You have to understand this. I can be in front of you doing this Bible study for 13 years and I can go to hell. Absolutely. This is coming from God, given to you. You understand? If I, inside of me, begin to use this to grow vanity and pride and begin to think of myself as being somebody who has knowledge and understanding and all of that, somehow I'm coming up with that stuff, I'm telling you, I'm creating my own damnation to hell through this very Bible study we're doing. Do you understand that? No. It is when I am willing to curb my pride and my short temper and when I'm willing to bend down and do the same thing that I do for 13 years repeatedly with love and care. It's all these unseen things that nobody will ever notice, that are not victories, that are not great things that anyone will ever see that turn into treasure. It's the interior life. A holy person has an interior life. A good person has an exterior life, and inside is hollow. A holy person will always end up feeding the hungry, taking care of the poor, doing all the corporate act of mercy, whether personally, because of what he does with his own hands, or through his word that inspires others to reach out and do all this work. Perfect example, the two, the two, the two sides of the equation, consider Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, who took care of all the poor on her knees and on her hands and did wonderful things, and on the other, other, other side of the extreme, Padre Pio. Padre Pio, by his own hands, didn't spend much time feeding the poor and taking care of the hungry. He couldn't. But didn't he at the same time feed the poor and take care of the hungry? Spiritually? Oh yeah, he did. So a holy person always ends up doing that. St. Sherbert lived in a hermitage, and look what he did. St. Rafa was sick for 30 years, and look, all the saints bring forth so much fruit externally. But that does not define holiness. It's their interior life. It's the hidden garden that matters, which none of us can see. That's why the church requires a miracle. If all it takes is for us to determine if a person is good, we can come up with the criteria, right? Why does the church ask for a miracle? Because at the end of the day, all that the church is doing is assessing through the external act, which is the only thing we can see, the internal sanctity of a person. Yet, as Scripture tells us, only the Holy Spirit can inspect the heart of man. The heart of man is only open to the Holy Spirit. So, we can only guess, so to speak. Hence, we need a confirmation from God. We think this person is indeed a saint. Lord, show us. And that is, we ask for a miracle. Okay? And then the person is beatified. 
and then the person becomes a saint. By the way, what's the difference between a, uh, uh, somebody who's beatified and somebody who's, who's, uh, who's um, declared a saint? What's the difference between the two? Miracles. Two miracles, yeah, but I mean, what's the difference between somebody who's beatified and somebody who's a saint? He hasn't become a saint, sure, but why are there two steps? That's what I'm asking. Okay, so first, the person is venerable, hmm? worthy of veneration. Then he's beatified. Then he's sanctified. He's declared, as, not sanctified, I'm sorry. He is declared a saint. Why are there these two stages between somebody who's beatified and somebody who's declared a saint? Okay, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, someone who's beatified is already in heaven. He's a saint in heaven. Okay? The difference, and that's, you have to really understand this and abide by the rule, is somebody who's beatified can only be venerated at, by the right in which he, 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 to which he belongs. Okay? So he is or she is uh, brought to our attention because they are examples for the people who knew them and who need them. They're local, so to speak. A saint is called a saint of the universal church. He can be venerated everywhere. Hence, in some sense, there is a reflection of their own glory in heaven, which we don't yet fully understand. But there's a definite difference between the two. So, for instance, uh, Mother Teresa is... uh, She's beatified. She hasn't been declared a saint, right? So therefore, outside, normally outside of the Latin rite, you would not have a portrait of Mother Teresa in a church right now. Once she's declared a saint, you can't. Because she becomes a saint of the universal church. All right? There is a degree of glory associated with these things, and also become a doctor of the church as a degree of glory, which I don't you know, claim to understand. But all of this talk is related to this conversation we're having in the book of Genesis. And that is, you are called to be holy which means you must become love. But it is the love of God. And you cannot, listen carefully now, you cannot become love, I cannot become love, unless I what? I receive love first. St. John, right? St. John, in his letter. Beloved, this is love. And love is that God has loved us first. That's why he says it. The intention from this is that our love is rooted in an eternal fountain of love that has loved us first. Meaning what? Meaning that God, omniscient, omnipotent, knowing everything, saw us, see us today with all our problems, our failings, our miseries, our sins, our addictions, our problems, everything, and he has loved us first. And with God, there is no time. God continues to love us. Why? Because He doesn't want us to remain the way we are. God doesn't love us the way we are to keep us the way we are. God loves us the way we are so that we become saints. So you have to receive love. You can't receive love unless you... Ask for it. Yeah? And you ask for it in two ways. You ask for it in prayer when you make time to pray because you're coming to God and asking Him for this love. And you ask for love when you recognize that God loves you 
in all things throughout your day. Especially the annoying things. Because what are the annoying things then? Training in love. Gifts. He's teaching you to love as He loves you. Think of it this way. That might help you or depress you, but hopefully it won't depress you. The annoying things in your day are a mirror that shows you how annoying you are to God. Do you understand? If you're thinking somehow that, oh, well, I am perfect, and I'm lovable, and I'm huggable, and more people want to be with me, especially God who's all perfect and almighty and all, who needs nothing at all. He, you know, he just want to be with me because of me. But all these other annoying people around me, why are they there? You get it now? Treat others as you would want others to treat you. Guess what? That others include God. Yeah. So it's this training. The perfect, perfect model, and that's why she was raised to such a level, is who? Saint Therese of Lisieux. What did she do? There was this one sister who annoyed her to no end. She was, I think, loud and whatever, right? She, she, she annoyed her. What did Sister uh, Saint Therese do? She kept her most beautiful smile for her. And every time she'd see her, she smiled. And this person, this particular sister, felt that she was so loved by her. Why? Why did God do that for her? Think of this portrait of Sister Therese smiling to this woman and look at the little, you know, um, bubbles about what she's thinking, both of them, right? Saint Therese, she's so annoying, God bless her, right? And the other sister, my, I don't know why Sister Saint Therese loved me so much. Okay? Now, substitute, take that sister away, put yourself, and take Saint Therese away and put Jesus. That's why this was happening. That's what Jesus does for you. And all of us, what do we do? We turn around and we yell at somebody. We, we, we complain because the weather is too whatever. Right? Yeah. It's a gift. Those annoying things are a gift. It's a mirror that shows you those areas that God wants you to change. If, you, if you, you're annoyed by someone who talks too much, maybe someone like me talks too much, it's because... You yourself talk too much or have that tendency in you. You tend to see those things that annoy you in others which are most flagrant in you. You see, see, a person who is not trying to grow in holiness sees in the others those sins that are most prevalent in them. A person growing in holiness sees in the others those virtues that they want to grow in. We think, oh, I'm so smart, I can criticize somebody. I see things, I'm so smart. Yeah, well, the devil is smarter than I am. And that's what he does all day long. The life of St. Saint, of Saint Joseph Cupertino is a perfect example. St. Joseph Cupertino was not a smart guy. Uh, St. John, um, John of Ars, the Curé d'Ars, same thing. Not very intellectually capable. But what love. What power in loving and accepting God's gifts. Talk about gifts. He was har- harassed by the devil all the time. At one point, the, the, his brothers found him with the, the curtains rolled around him and on fire. The, the priest, 
And they really got annoyed with him because he woke him up in the middle of the night. I mean, talk about the gifts that God sent him. But eventually he put the two together. Every time the devil came upon him really, really harshly, he figured out, because he saw the correlation, oh, I'm going to catch a big fish tomorrow. That's how we would say. Meaning somebody would come to him in confession and he would be able to snatch him from the hands of the devil. He realized the connection. So, eventually, when everybody around him was terrorized by all that stuff going around, he was kind of rubbing his hands. Tomorrow's going to be a good day. He saw the gift. Even the attacks, the worst attacks of the devil, became a gift to him. God was talking to him. Yeah, that's our lives. Life is a gift. Every day, every second, every minute. Don't squander the gift by complaining. Hmm? When you complain, where are you? Who can complain? Think about that for a second. Who can really complain? The one who can afford to complain, right? So what does that make you if you complain? Rich. Only the rich can complain. Because they're incapable of receiving a gift. They don't need a gift. They're not hungry. They're not thirsty. They're not poor. And you know what he said about those who are rich. How difficult it is for them to enter heaven. He didn't only mean dollars. Don't squander the gift. Don't complain. Work on that. All right. And oh, by the way, I didn't mean to say any of that when I started. So don't blame me. All right. So let's go back to uh, the book of uh, the chapter 48. Hmm. So I apologize. I don't know why I said all this and why I spent so much time on it, but I did. Okay. Now, so what, what does Jacob do? Jacob essentially receives Manasseh and Ephraim. And he will, he says to Joseph in verse 5, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. What is he doing exactly when he says they're mine? Yes, and he says precisely as uh, Simeon and Levi. So he puts them in the order of priority as the first two born sons. He's adopting them. Why is he adopting them? Because he wants to pass on to them the promise that God gave him. Joseph did not receive such promise. Only Jacob did. And now he wants to include them in that promise that they too will be sharer in the inheritance of the promised land. But instead of taking one of the two, let's say the firstborn, he takes both of them. Hence, what does he give Joseph? The double portion, which is reserved to who? The firstborn. You understand? To the firstborn. That's what Joseph receives. The, the portion of the firstborn. Right? And it is very interesting. It's fascinating actually. If you think about marriage in this context. Because you might argue in this case. That jo- Joseph was all along the natural firstborn of Jacob. Because the only marriage he had was with Rachel. And not with any other woman. You can look at it this way. So. He takes the two, and he says, Bring them to me that I may bless them. And, oh, before verse 8, he said, When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons. Now, it, is, it would be really surprising, very surprising, if this was the first time that Jacob was seeing his grandchildren. Right? So this verse has caught 
caused quite a bit of confusion among many, um, many um, um, critics or many um, uh, scholars because they couldn't make sense of it. Why is he now saying who are these? I mean, as if he doesn't know. So a couple of explanations are given. He can't see. Right? Therefore, he couldn't tell that this is, these are his grandsons. Obviously, this explanation lack fundamental realism because what do you think the grandsons would have done when they would see their grandfather? Hi, Grandpa. Right? They would have spoken. He would have recognized them by their voices. So that doesn't hold. The other explanation, the usual one when you can't explain something difficult, come up with a nice little trick to, to get you out of it. Um, this comes from a different strand uh, and different tradition and different source. We start playing the archaeological game with Scripture. But there is a simple a simpler and much more natural explanation to all of this. Jacob is now getting into this official part of his blessing. Right? So, you know when two people take their vows to get married? What do they say? Let's, say, let's start with the, with, the, with the groom. What does he say? I, I what? Let's say his name is John and her name is Mary. He says, I... John. And what does Mary say? Oh, your name is John. That's so nice. I, I, I didn't know that before. I've just been dating you for a year. I didn't know your name is John. Why is he saying John? To remind himself his name? No. Why do, does he, what does he say? I, John. Yes. They're witnesses. That's what's going on here. As simple as that. Who are these? These are my sons. Right? Joseph is reaffirming his paternity as far as these two kids are concerned and now the thing can flow so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this much ink has been spilled which I think really for nothing but that's my own personal opinion and uh, we can keep on moving all right these are my sons whom God has given me here whom God has given me notice Joseph whom God has given me here God is the is the author of everything and Joseph is always very conscious of that uh, bring them to me I pray you that I may bless them and so and he said, bring them to me. So now the blessing is going to proceed. He embraces them. He kisses them. And then uh, Israel is expressing his joy. I had not thought to see your face. And lo, God has let me see your children also. Notice how the children are a blessing. Despite everything that has happened to him, he's rejoicing in these two kids. God has let me see your children. Why is that? Bring, what does it bring happiness to him? Fulfillment of the covenant, but also the fulfillment of the promise. In other words, for him, this is a miracle. These kids are a miracle. And if God can make this little miracle, he surely would be able to make the big one, as he promised. So you can see how the events in his own life are pointers for Jacob, confirming what God said will happen to him. The little signs that God give us during our day. Confirm what God has planned for us in heaven. So it makes us really happy. It's a constant reminder of God's voice. I love you. Right? And that's what's going on here for, 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 uh, for Jacob. And now he brings the two of them. And um, the scripture is very specific here. Um, J J Jacob is sitting... And uh, Manasseh is facing the right hand of Jacob, and Ephraim is facing his left hand. But then Jacob actually crosses his arms and puts his 
right hand on the head of Ephraim and left hand on the head of Manasseh. He gives the prominent blessing, the firstborn to Ephraim. Again, and Jacob and Joseph is displeased by that because he's not respecting the natural order and he's trying to get him to reverse. He says, no, I know, no. I know who they are and I did it this way because the, the younger will will overtake the older. And there are actually some interesting uh, points to bring up here because St. Ephraim, for instance, sees in this crossing of the hand the cross of Christ. Here, too, the cross is clearly symbolized to depict that mystery with which Israel, the firstborn, departed, just as Manasseh, the firstborn, and the peoples increased in the manner of Ephraim, the younger. So, essentially, what he's saying is that the cross is that point in time where we don't bless the firstborn, but actually the second. Not the chosen people, but the Gentiles. Benjamin represents the Gentiles. The last one to come who will receive the blessing from the new Israel, from Christ. Likewise, St. Ambrose sees in Benjamin a, in Ephraim, I'm sorry, in Ephraim, a, a, a representation of St. Paul, the 13th apostle, right? Uh, because, yeah, I mean, let's just leave it at that. So the, you, you see how the fathers see in this a representation of what was yet to come and its full realization with the coming of Christ. Now, in, um, the, there is a census taken in the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 35 and 33, Chapter 1, verse 33 and 35. A census of all the tribes. And in that census, Ephraim had overtaken Manasseh in Numbers. However, if you go to Numbers, chapter 26, verse 34 and 37, you would notice that the opposite takes place. Manasseh is more numerous than Ephraim. And it indicates that some disasters seem to have fallen the tribe, reducing its population at least for a while. And there is, we'll get to that at one point, uh, hopefully, God willing. In 1 Chronicles, chapter 7, verse 20 to 23, an obscure narrative about the Gathites who slew the sons of Ephraim. Apparently, something must have happened to reduce Ephraim in number. However, the key thing for us is this. Once the kingdom of Israel splits in two, northern and southern, the, no, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem is, will be known as the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Judah. Hmm? The kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom will, be, will become known as the kingdom of Israel. And the ten tribes will be up there in the north, and the south will have the tribe of Judah, and that of Benjamin not because Benjamin, the Benjaminite would have chosen to stick around with Judah, but because Jerusalem is in the territory of Benjamin, and Judah was not about to let go of Jerusalem and the temple. So they had no choice. There is another name for the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Ephraim, also known as the kingdom of Ephraim. So really, Ephraim receives prominence across all the tribes in that his name will be associated with the kingdom of Israel in the north. Whereas Judah receives prominence because of the promise that the Messiah 
the line of Judah will come from Judah. All right? And the last thing I'll say about this chapter, which is sort of, you know, it, it has an interesting um, aspect to it. In verse 22, Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope. This is the translation I have. Which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The, the actual wording is very problematic. Um, so, the Hebrew Shechem Ahad causes a lot of uh, problems. So, some, some uh, scholars will translate it as, I've given to you the city of Shechem. The problem is, you don't usually give uh, a piece of the city. And normally, there, there would be, the, the construction of the sentence just does not work right to say it is Shechem. But this translation, mountain slope, has also its problems. So let me read this to you. There are difficulties with the identification of the Hebrew Shechem with the city. First, the phrase one Shechem is very strange. So the Hebrew is saying, I'll give to you one Shechem. And that makes no sense that it'll be, the, what is one Shechem? He should have said, I'll give, you, I'll give to you the city of Shechem. Right? But he says one Shechem. Uh, and in any case, Hebrew usage requires a feminine adjective with a city name. Ahad, not Ahad. These problems may perhaps be overcome if Shechem is a play on words. Using a vocable whose meaning is not now lost. So maybe there's a play on word here we don't understand. Which alludes to the city of Shechem. The historical problem is more difficult. Jacob did not participate in the raid of the city and in fact denounced the action as related in Genesis 34. While the plot of land he held there was purchased peacefully, not taken in war. So he didn't capture Shechem by his sword and bow. bow. Uh, and so early interpretation said, uh, okay, it's prayer and petition, not sword and bow. They tried to take it figuratively. Um, or mitzvot, which means good deeds. Or metaphorical expression for divine help. Some will say there may have been a war between him and Shechem in which he didn't directly participate, but he won it. But... Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that in the book of Joshua, which we'll cover at one point, there is no conquest of that city, which might mean that it was conquered before. And all, the only reason I'm bringing all that to you is, again, to highlight the challenges that are inherent in Scripture and that anyone who will say, all I need is Scripture, is, really does not study Scripture to enough depth to recognize the challenges and difficulties. They only stick to a very... Um, surface level reading, and only in those parts they're comfortable with. The, the, the bottom line of all of this is we really don't know how to translate this. So whatever you're reading in your Bible, book right now is an approximate translation of whatever was intended by Jacob when he spoke those words. And it's not the only place that happens in Scripture. There are many other places where this is happening as well. Right? So again, thinking that oh, well, all I need is just this book is, is tantamount of saying, Oh, we just, look, we discovered this planet out there, and, and, uh, and there's this book. I have no clue how to read it, but that's all I need to understand what the planet is all about. Or the example I usually give is some sort of an extraterrestrial showing up to Earth and picking up Alice in Wonderland and going back home and explaining how we live on Earth based on the book of Alice in Wonderland. You know, there are rabbits who are late and queens saying off with their heads and that sort of stuff. Right? You can't. You need the context. You need archaeology, you need history, you need a lot to really capture 
what scripture meant, and then you can build upon it and, and capture the spiritual meaning. All right? Okay. So let's uh, end with a word of prayer, and then we'll take some questions. All right. No, not rich in problem. When I said when, do not complain when you have an, something coming at you, right? Is that when you complain, you're essentially expressing what? You're expressing your rejection of this reality. You just don't like it. You're expressing the fact that your, your taste is not, does not find sweetness in this difficulty, right? So you can't find sweetness in suffering. And that's typically rich people. They can't find sweetness in suffering. But that's yet, this is what Christ calls us to do. Take on my burden, for my burden is light, right? We are supposed to do that. We're supposed to find sweetness in suffering. Because this is how love overshadows everything and transforms everything and makes it possible for us to be happy even though we are in the midst of trials. So when we complain, we're actually telling God, I don't need your grace. I don't want to accept what you're giving me. I don't think you're next to me. I don't want your help. I just want to be rid of all of this. I don't want the cross. You understand? So if, if, if we are in a, complaining, in a habit of a complaining nature, we need to fight it very, very strongly so that we can actually change our ways and really accept God's gift in our lives, which is very important. Yeah? Yes? Because if it isn't from God, who is it from? Let's, let's play this game. Very good question. How do you know it's from God? Okay, assume, proof by contradiction. Assume it is not from God. Who is it from? Pardon? It's from Satan. Can Satan do anything if God does not allow him to? If God allows him to do that, is it because God is just allowing it to him because Satan has the right for his free will and God has to give it to him and it's okay? Ah, is it for us to grow? Always. Yes. You absolutely do spiritual warfare. I'm not, I'm not preaching pacifism here. I'm not saying, oh, it's God's will. You know, beat me more. Come on, more, more. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about when the problem comes to you, when a difficulty shows up, it's God's gift to you. Now you go on and face it. But if you have that mental attitude, oh, okay, Lord, this is a gift from you, you will be much better prepared to face it with Him. Do you see? You have to do the spiritual warfare. Absolutely. It's expected of you. But you can't do spiritual warfare if you have a, an attitude of being defeated. If you think that Satan can do anything or bring anything to you without God's will and express permission and love, you've introduced defeat in your heart. But if you know, okay, God, you're using him to make me stronger, and now I'm going to go and ask your mother to help me, and I'm going to beat him. You see the, the difference? Yeah? Does this help? Okay. Yes. Okay. Let's, let's pray that it comes back. First question, blessings. You, you said something that, that, that caught my, my attention. You said, I try to bless my kids. What you mean is that you bless them, but you're trying to bless them more. Yes, very good. Yeah. The, the, um, and, and so you're saying it's the blessing before they die. Well, actually, that blessing was really the passing on to the firstborn of the promises of the covenant. That's why it was so important. In, uh, back then. For us today, it is of lesser importance than it was back then because we are all firstborn in a sense in, in Christ. I mean, we're secondborn after Jesus. But essentially, we all partake of the same grace and the same gift given to us. 
So when you bless them, you're effectively imparting upon them those graces that God wants to give them through you. And that's a wonderful thing to do. And yeah, doing, them regular, doing it regularly and using holy water and sacramentals is a wonderful thing to do with your children. Okay, the second one is, yes, the church asks us to pay the utmost respect to the body. And the church would rather have the body buried because from dust you are to dust you shall return. And uh, therefore, burying a body would be the, be- be- the better thing to do. Now, uh, I personally, I'll tell you right now, and I'm, this is something I'm going to be fighting for. The day I die, I want, I want them to bring me to the church in a box, very simple box. And then right after the, the, the Mass, I want them to bury me. There will not be a three-day whatever, right? Like I'm going to some sauna or some no, right? And then after that, let them go and eat and console each other as much as they want. But they will not be spending money on me. It's not worth it, right? So we make it expensive because we are so afraid of death that we have to have it perfectly choreographed all the way through, right? That, that it's nonsensical. So it's up to us to make a different stand and say we're going to be buried differently. Right? No, I didn't say you cannot have personal prayer for Mother Teresa. You can't. You can't have a liturgy on her honor in your, litur- in your right, right now. You cannot have a, a liturgy of Mother Teresa. Well, yeah, and you can't have all, you know, a whole group of people wanting to celebrate her feast day. You cannot? No, not in the Chaldean church, not in the Maronite church. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the, um, um, the fundamental difference between being blessed and being a saint. So likewise, uh, John Paul II. Is he blessed right now? No. I think he is, isn't he? Isn't that yet proclaimed blessed? Right. Even when he is, it's really still, he pertains still to the Latin rite. But once he's saint, then he becomes a saint of the universal church. Yes? Venerable is somebody who is worthy of personal veneration. Right? But he can't have, uh, there's no cult in his honor celebrated in the church. Not in honor of a blessed of a different right, no. Only within your own right. Like since this, this brother, that father, brother... Uh, Stephen. Stephen, when he's declared blessed in June or July of mm. next year, he'll only pertain to the Maronite church. Right? If and when he's then uh, proclaimed a saint, he becomes a saint of the, of the universal. Okay, all saints are saints of the universal church. That's the difference. No, no, no. Uh, the, I, when, I spoke, when I spoke about the failure of the firstborn, I meant that two things. I meant that in, in Genesis, we see consistently the firstborn failing. And I asked the question, why is that? And the answer is that on our own, as firstborns, we fail too. We need Jesus. Now that we have Jesus, we don't have to fail with firstborn as long as we live a life of grace. But also, everybody, in a sense, becomes a firstborn. Yeah, correct. Yes, so the way to say it is the way St. Augustine said it, and I've quoted this to you a number of times, when he spoke of the Ten Commandments as the law. Why was the law given? Why was the Ten Commandments given? When God gave them the Ten Commandments, and he told this, as he, the Lord himself told Ezekiel, the prophet, I have given them a law by which they could not live. It's in the book of Ezekiel. Where he speaks to Zeke and tells him, I have given them a law, the Ten Commandments, by which they could not live. And so St. Augustine summarizes this in his usual genius when he says, the law was given 
so that grace we may seek. So once you see the tall order of the law, you realize, oh, I can't live this way. You, know, you only have you know, only one God. Uh, you know, honor your mother and father, and you're not going to steal, you're not going to lust, this and that and the other. Meaning you're going to live a righteous life. If you're really honest with yourself, you go, I can't live like this. It's impossible for me to uphold this law. So the next logical step is to go, okay, the law is a gift. God gave it to me. So what am I supposed to do? I need to go ask him to help me live the law. So what does God do? Step three. He gives me his love, which is his grace. And now that I receive the grace, what do I do? Step four. I obey the law. So the law was given so that grace we may seek. And grace was given so that the law we may keep. St. Augustine. So that's, that's the difference. As long as we are able to stay true, we can... And then the wonderful thing in our case is that you have confession. Even when you fall, you can start again. I mean, how amazing is this compared to what they had? They had none of that. Very good point. Yes, assurance is of the, that the grace comes to the unworthy, the one who's not the firstborn, which is us, right? We receive also the grace. We don't have to be worthy of the grace to receive it. We receive it because of the death of Jesus on the cross. It's not a matter of worthiness. It's a matter of the fact that God loved us first, and now we, we correspond to His love. Yes. Well, let's, ta- I mean, let's take it one step at a time. When we begin to accept even a small suffering, God is already gifting us and elevating our soul. Even if, let's say, I am able to accept the sufferings of hunger. Okay? I can put up with it with equanimity. I don't lose my temper. I don't punish others because I'm hungry. I, I remain patient, level, and I control myself. On the other hand, if my team loses a game, I just I become absolutely insufferable. God still sees that here I've made some progress, and he therefore is going to help me accordingly. Yeah? Now the our intent obviously is to try to, as you just said, to expand that horizon, to cover as much as possible of all our aspects, all aspects of our lives, and be able to accept all those, the suffering as the gift from God. I'll tell you one suffering that is really hard to accept for many people. And it's one that can cause them, cause us uh, quite a bit of torture. It is the suffering that comes from habitual sin. So let's say you are, uh, my favorite example, addicted to broccoli. Broccoli. If you go to Vons or any other such store and there is broccoli, you and somebody's trying to buy broccoli, take broccoli from the stand, you yell at them, you kick them away, you sit in the stand and you eat all the broccoli, all 20 pounds of it. You're addicted to broccoli. And you go to confession for five years, confessing your addiction to broccoli. You recognize it's a sin, you pray the rosary, you fast. You want to stop being addicted to broccoli. You really believe firmly that God can't say one word and you stop being addicted to broccoli on the spot. You are doing all the right things 
And guess what? Now, instead of eating 20 pounds of broccoli, you're up to 40 pounds of broccoli. Not only it did not improve, it gotten worse. Trying to see in that still a gift from God is extremely difficult. Trying to see that through it all, God is still there and He's doing great things through something like this is extremely difficult. And yet, people who suffer from addiction needs affirmation so much because they are down on themselves and the devil is trying everything he can to tell them what? You're unworthy. You are not going to make it to heaven. God doesn't care about you because if he did, he would, you've been asking for so long, he would have healed you already. You shouldn't uh, persevere. Give it up. Nobody cares. On none of those. So for them to be able to reach that level and accept this addiction, and some people um, die with these types of addiction. They just can't get out of it. They are, they are purifying their lives. They are, imp- they are um, practicing virtue in many different aspects of their lives. But in that one particular angle, they just can't let go. And to accept that God is not healing this person and to accept that the fact that God is not healing this person is actually His greatest gift for them requires faith. Yeah? So, again, the mere fact that on one little thing, one little thing, you told your son 400 times, brush your teeth and go to bed. And it's 1130, what is he doing? To be able to see in the fact that you have to repeat so often, brush your teeth and go to bed. And instead of saying, he's driving me crazy, he's doing this, he's doing that. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, what are you trying to show me about me? There's a gift here for me. There's something, you're, you're talking to me through the stubborn child here. What are you telling me? You see the difference? It's huge. But it's a trust in God's gift. No matter what, Jesus, I trust in you. No matter what. That is demanding. You see, picture this. Let, let's, let's put it before the guys first, and then we'll put it before the gals after. The guys, you are sitting with the most beautiful woman on earth. Period. Okay? There can't be any more beautiful woman than this one. Before or after? You're with me? Here's the kicker. You're, you have leprosy. Hmm? You have leprosy. And this woman is in love with you. What range of emotions do you think you're going to go through? What do you think you're going to do? This woman wants to, she's the most beautiful woman on earth and she wants to marry you. What do you do? Pardon? Pray to God. But you understand the tension? I just want to bring up the tension when I'm talking about putting up with our sufferings. Because the more you grow in the spiritual life, what becomes really unbearable to you is you. You become unsufferable to yourself. Because the more you see God's beauty and God's glory and God's kindness and God's love for you, the more you see how wretched you are, your temptation is to do what? Say, I am exactly despair. I am beyond God. I can't, it's impossible for somebody who is so beautiful to love somebody who is so wretched as myself. 
I put limits on love. Instead of being able to stay there and allow the gaze of that beautiful woman to heal your leprosy, imagine the pain that you have to go through this. Just by her gaze, she can heal your leprosy. And by the way, this is not an image. This woman is called the Blessed Virgin Mary. And yes, sin is worse than leprosy. And yes, she doesn't let go of you. Women, you have the perfect man. The absolute perfect man in front of you. And um, you are your own worst nightmare when you look at yourself in the mirror. In fact, you're so ugly that when people see you, they faint. Have I painted the right image for you now? (coughs) And this man, this most beautiful man there is out there, look at you and say, I love you so much, I want to die for you. What would you do? And again, this is not an image, by the way. That's exactly what he did. He died for you. And if you think your hair being curly or not curly... If you think that your face having a pimple on it is a problem, try sin. Life is a gift. Yeah. All these shortcomings, all these difficulties, all the troubles of your life are a gift. God is talking to you. What do we do most of the time? We complain. We do this. We do that. We refuse. We, go get, we, go, we amuse ourselves. We run away. We run away from the gift. And then we say, well, how come God is not hearing my prayer? All right. Yes. Very good. I pray to withstand the trouble because I know it will be better afterwards. You just summed up the Christian faith. Because St. Paul tells us, without the resurrection, we are fools. So we're not here because we're gluttons of pain. We're here because we know what comes after. So faith, hope, the virtue of hope. So charity is what God puts in our heart. Faith is a response to it. And hope is what sustains us because we cannot see. Faith, hope, and charity is what is placed in our heart by the act, by the love of God through His grace at baptism. He gives us faith, hope, and charity. Those are gifts of His for the journey. You're absolutely right. It's not a cop-out. This is exactly what we're supposed to do. It's very reasonable, isn't it? I mean, think of it as an investment. The, 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 the horrible thing is that we as human beings are willing to do this, what you just described. We do it happily with excitement, with energy, and with strength for money. We are willing to do it. And we don't call it pain. It's wonderful. We work 80 hours a day, I mean 80 hours a week, we spend all our energy on it, we have the whole excitement of starting a business, and when success comes, we're all so happy, and it's for dust. Why? Because it's easy, you see? Even in all of this, there is not the real pain of facing who I am. Christ is telling us, look at the truth. You must find the truth in your life, and the truth will set you free. So that's why it's hard. And by the way, when we are after money and all of this, the devil pulls away. There's no pressure. There's no spiritual pressure coming down. But as soon as you do these other things, he's all over it. And that's why I keep on telling you the rosary is heavy, not simply naturally heavy. It is supernaturally heavy. You're doing battle. As soon as you pick it up, he's at your door. 
And he's applying as much pressure as he can to prevent you from saying it because he knows how powerful it is. So it's, it's, yeah, it is heavy. Accept it. If you ever say rosary and it's very, very light and it's super joyful and wonderful, worry. Now, it could be perfect. It could be a gift of Our Lady. Usually, she, it, it's not a gift. It's really, you need a, you're basically saying, I, I need a piece of knefe. I mean, I need ice cream. I need something, right? It's just a piece of sweet that she's giving you. Right? So it's really a, a, a condescension to your weakness. It's not, you know, people think, oh, having consolation and prayer is wonderful. No, it's not. It's actually condescension. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's wonderful to have these consolation, and many of us absolutely need them. But it's a condescension to our weakness. Recognize it for what it is. It's when you have those aridity, you say the rosary, you have no taste to it. No, you can't even concentrate, but you keep at it. When you go to Mass, likewise, it's when you're faced with all those difficulties, God is saying, okay, let me see. You say you love me, let me take all the goodies from you. No goodies. No consolation in prayer. Right? No winning the lotto. Yeah? No joy in your work. Let me get you to feel a little bit alone. Right? Let me add a little trouble to your life. Let's see how you react. Now you show me if you love me. Do you understand? He never give us more than we can bear. Absolutely. If, <laughs> as long as we're talking about the blessings. Now, the curses are a completely different matter. Right? For those who deny Him and denigrate Him and refuse to listen to Him and want to do their own way, yeah, they will get more than they can bear. Right? So we have to be careful with the language. He never give us more than we can bear as long as we are corresponding to His will. But once we don't, all bets are loose. Yes, because there is no bad ending for those who love God. Yeah, in a human measure, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. You know, there is no bad things that happen to people who love God. There are no bad things that happen to you if you love God. Everything will work onto your own glory. Right? It is bad when you have your own plans. And things don't happen accordingly. It is bad when you play God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. And then the other. And then these other three things are going to happen. I'm going to be the king of the hill. Guess what? You end up, you know, I don't know, walking behind a donkey. That wasn't part of the plan, so you conclude it's bad. Really? You, you hope you, be, you get behind a donkey because, yep, yep, because that, that's God's plan for you to bring you back behind a donkey because he's freeing you from yourself. Yeah. Make sense? Yes. Charity is more specific. Very good question. Uh, faith, hope, and charity are the three theological virtues which were given at baptism. And I like the word charis, so caritas, because it is really related to grace, whereas the word love can mean a whole host of different things. The Greek was much more specific in its understanding of love. So there is eros, which is erotic love. There is um, agape, which is the highest form of love. But there is another word for friendship and another word for marital love. So they had different kinds of word used for love. In English, we only have, well, we only use one, right? So when we mean affection, we use love. When we mean, um, you know, uh, lust, we, we sometimes use love. And on and on it goes. I'd rather use a more precise language. That's why. Oh, yes. Why does he mention the death of Rachel? A couple of reasons. is because um, 
you know, there are commentators who spoke quite a bit about this. It seems like an insertion into something that, has, that is not part of the text. But actually, there is reason for it. First, this particular verse is related to chapter 35, verse 9 through 20, where God makes the promise to Jacob that he is going to make his descendants very numerous. In 9 to 15, the promise is made. And then from 15 to 20, we, we have the death of Rachel recounted. So in the mind of Jacob, the death of Rachel has always been connected to that promise made. Now here, if you notice, right before that in verse 5 and 6, he's evoking that promise. And it's naturally bringing also that grief of losing Rachel. Right? So on the human plane, it's just natural for him to be able to uh, mention that. And um, Rachel was the mother of uh, Joseph. And Joseph never knew what happened to her. So it is also... Good for Joseph to hear it. These are the reasons why he mentions uh, Rachel. Yeah. Uh, you, oh, yeah, back to the question. You can um, uh, cremate. The church allows that, but for in very specific um, cases. Like, for instance, you have to take the, the body back with you for, for whatever reason. You can't bury them where you are. Uh, it's not the preferred method. Right? I am not, um, I don't have the specifics in, in uh, in mind, the Catechism speaks of it, and there are more specific rules in the canon about uh, the, the preferred way. But the preferred way usually is through burial, not through cremation. Yes. Well, okay, popular, but I, the church has not changed her rules over this. Again, the church has not changed her rules. So I don't know why it's becoming more popular, but I'm telling you what the church, the church has, what I re- recall last time I checked. Now, you need to do your own... Um, little homework here and, and look into it a little further. Yes. Financially. Yes. But don't do funny things with the, with the, with the ashes. Like, th- you know, throw them out. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a very interesting case here in California because there's this company who started, who created, who came up with this concept of um, uh, a space cemetery. So you, you had two uh, options. They can take a bit of uh, the ashes and shoot them out in a little container. And uh, you, can, <laughs> you can either be orbiting the earth or they can send the ashes to the sun. And in case you're orbiting the earth, you have an option of sending another capsule that contains a miniature flower that can run behind it. Now, that's not the, the, the interesting part of the story. The interesting part of the story is that they got sued. And you know what they got sued for? Because there's an ordinance in California that says that every cemetery must have a paved way, a paved access. And obviously, they that we're having a, a little bit of trouble complaining with that particular ordinance. So, yeah, if you cremate, you need to bury the, the urn still, right? You can't just put it somewhere or uh, as a decorative thing or on a shelf or whatever, right? Yes. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. Being a first, I mean, the, every child is a gift, and the order is preordained by God for our sanctification. So you're, the firstborn in your family typically is supposed to be the one who helped the siblings also along. He or she acts as a role model or supposed to. They have more responsibility on their shoulders to be able to be the role model for everybody else. Right? And that's, that's really key to understand. Now, that's in a natural order, and I think it's still true. In a supernatural order, it is no longer true because of the graces given to us by Christ, and we are all in his presence acting as firstborn to each other, where we can impart graces and gifts according to his measure. So that is no longer true, but he was considered to be the spiritual firstborn. So that's the whole thing about Genesis. It follows the spiritual order 
according to the will of God, not according to human standards. So in human standards, Israel, Jacob was not the firstborn. Esau was. But according to God, he was. Because of his ability to lead others. Right? Of the role that he played in essentially imaging Christ. That's what Joseph acted like a firstborn. Right? That's, what, that, that's the key important element in the whole uh, strand of Genesis. Being a firstborn. So Adam was supposed to be one and he failed. Right? And you see you have a cascading series of these failures coming all the way down to Christ, who is the true firstborn, who did not fail. And because he didn't, we don't either. Or we can not fail today. No, no. The, yeah, the, the, in the spiritual realm today, it's no, no longer as relevant. Uh, obviously, the Pope is the firstborn, going from Peter all the way through, and he leads the whole church. So uh, he has that burden to carry forward. And us in our own charism play that, that role of, of guiding others, of helping others on the way to salvation. But it's now open to others. That's why St. Peter says this is open to everyone. The, uh, the um, royal priesthood, prophet, so we are all kings, prophets, and um, priests. We, we, this is different from the uh, ordained priesthood, but that's the ministry of what? Being a king or a queen, meaning essentially carrying what? The image of the Father to others, blessing them. Right? Prophet, meaning what? Interpreting the signs of times according to God's will for others. And priest, imparting upon others the blessings that we receive in the different gifts that we have. This has all come to us through the grace of God. Yeah? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you, and God bless you.